Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. I'm your host, Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. In this series, we go deep and we get real. We're building empathy for underrepresented and historically marginalized people and providing tangible, actionable steps we can all take to be better allies and advocates for each other. This week, we are discussing how to be a great ally for trans and gender non-conforming colleagues with Sloan, Madalena, and Max. Hello, you three. So good to see you, you all, and thank you for joining us. If you could each take a few moments to introduce yourselves and say a bit about your story. Sloan, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you for the introduction and for the welcome and special thanks to Max because I think it's probably the best way to start is always to start with gratitude. And I was asked to do this panel about an hour and a half ago. And I want to actually talk about why I said yes as my introduction, because I said yes, because I see Max as a comrade and not only an ally, which is what this work is about for me. Max and I met, you know, somewhere sometime before Corona when we got to see each other in person. And I said yes, because even though it was last minute, and I don't currently believe in free black labor, I have found that I do believe in comradeship and meeting me where I see the struggle and providing opportunity to create relief. So I thank you that for that, Max. I'm the director of social innovation at the VAD group, and my practice is community design, which means that I'm working to be of service to help facilitate conversations that are difficult and create action that is durable, emergent, and collectively uh, valuable. I'm really excited to be here today. My name's Madalena, uh, pronoun is she, her. I'm once again, thank you so much for organizing this space for all of us to talk about transgender and gender non-conforming folks. Max and I, we all actually know each other from a different community, which is really funny. We all know each other because they are allies who are making space that helps, you know, all of us to connect with each other and make space for us to like be able to have a voice and speak up. For my work, I have two things. So one is that I'm a national senior director at Startup Bus. Is a tech entrepreneurship bootcamp that helped foster the next generation of tech talents. I'm also a product designer and I do a lot of user research as well as, you know, user interface designs to help create products for like communications, healthcare, and like a lot of different SaaS platforms. Thanks for having me here. Thank you, Madalina. Thank you, Sloan. Um, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to had this conversation with, with me. Um, so I'm Max, I use they them pronouns. I'm um, UX research senior product designer. I've done that for many, many years. For the past two, three years, I put that work a bit aside and I run Argo Collective as one of the co-founders. And we came up with trainings and workshops to help tech companies mostly and schools as well to be more uh, inclusive more gender inclusive and using a tactical way to do it. And it was really based a lot into empathy and compassion. <clears throat> I am using the past tense because for the past six months and roughly a bit coming from last year, I myself got burned out of like bringing those workshops and trainings into companies where the leadership were not on board. And I think that's the discussion I also want to address of like the people I met 
people in, on the ground, people who actually do the work, they want those training, they want to get better, they want to have tools. And a lot of the time we were ready to do the trainings and we were received with radio silence or the leadership suddenly decided that they don't want to put some time and money towards that. And that made me reconsider my own core purpose and vision. And with my skills in uh, design, product design and UX research, I started to go back into bringing that as my own um, skills that I can actually bring for more impact. So now I'm working again into different companies, mostly healthcare, mental healthcare for uh, underserved communities. Uh, And that's where I really, really find more satisfaction and like helping people to get more um, awareness, compassion and build with uh, the communities. So I... I'm very interested in that discussion on how to be a great ally where I see the limitation from the work I did. Uh, I'm very excited and very proud for this panel to, to happen today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all for being here and for sharing your experience and, and your stories. And I want to take a moment to say the names and acknowledge the lives of Tony McDade and Nina Pop and also Iana Dior. And I just want to sit for a moment in that and, and make sure that we recognize them and recognize what's happening now. And along those lines, we are in a couple of global pandemics right now. And I'm going to start off a little bit differently than, than normal, just because I want to recognize where the time that we're in and leave space for talking about that. So with COVID-19, the transgender community has definitely been hit hard. And also the second pandemic of racism and globally coming to terms with that in, in a way that I don't think we have for a long time or ever. Can we just go around and talk about what's on your mind at the moment? Whatever you're feeling and um, whatever you want to kind of rise to the surface in this conversation. I think that the phrase rise to this in this conversation is really appropriate. I've been thinking a lot about how in the as designers, we understand layers, right? Like you go into Adobe, there are layers, we get layers of meaning and we build in layers. And I think that's true as a metaphor to understand the moment that we're in. Because in my own reflection, I think particularly as a black person, racism isn't new. And the pandemic does have disproportionate impacts on Black people because of racism. So it's like the dialogue is both, this is new in terms of mainstream narrative. This is the first time in my 35 years, and I grew up with social justice organizers. It's the first time in my life that CNN is like, we got to fight for social justice. I'm like, I don't know where I am. So that's a conversation layer that's happening that gives me joy. It makes me feel like, oh my God, people are finally going to fight for Black trans lives and I can stay my Black trans self at home, which feels nice. But I think there are also layers below that where people in their interpersonal and their internal self are really trying to figure out what the work means and understanding like, where are the limitations of our practices right now to do this work? Like, what are the limitations of empathy? And I don't have all those answers, but I know that there's a layered conversation that we're all trying to have together on Instagram and in these Zooms. And I think a lot about the, the power in that and the acknowledgement that there's a different sense of urgency for different people. Max, I'm curious, how are you thinking about this moment? Let's have Madalina and uh, I can add my own thoughts. Thank you. Um, so, well, from the lens of uh, coronavirus, 
there's definitely a lot of things in my mind because when a pandemic or a crisis happens that affects the entire population, the people who are more vulnerable becomes in an even more precarious position than they even were before. There's a lot of resources that transgender and gender non-conforming folks rely on. Uh, for example, there's healthcare, right? So now that the healthcare system is already strained, uh, for people like me that depends on hormonal replacement therapy, uh, it, it becomes more difficult for me to get the medication that I need for my own transition. So that's one. A lot of uh, transgender folks uh, and gender non-conforming folks, they're not necessarily accepted by their own family. They might not have a home to go back to. Well, during this time where everybody are advised to stay home, or well, during the curfew, everybody has to stay home. Where can they go? There's not a lot of places where they can go. And there's like, as a trans person, there's, I really wish that I had more power and resources to do more for my community. There's a lot of tragic deaths, tragic like deaths that had happened uh, during the coronavirus outbreak. There's a lot of brilliant minds and community leaders that are affected, are hospitalized, or have their lives taken away from us. Recently, in April, uh, there's a community leader within Queens. Her name is uh, Lorena Bojas. I, I hope I didn't butcher the name because I'm not very good at Spanish. Here's her story, and I think it needs to be heard by everybody. Being a Latinx transgender immigrant, uh, she arrives at the, uh, when she was 20 years old from, from Mexico in the 1980s. And um, being an immigrant is already difficult when you're undocumented. Um, it's hard to get jobs, you know, hard to have money to survive. In 1986, uh, President Reagan has an amnesty and that allows her to achieve citizenship in the United States. However, six years later, the things that happened in, when she was younger came back to haunt her and she was charged for crimes that she didn't did because she was being human profit and was forced to do sex with. And she was uh, at risk of losing her citizenship as a result. And for the 40 years that she stayed in the United States, she was constantly on the verge of like crisis and like constantly being threatened by police, uh, being suspected of like prostituting despite that's just a common misconception of transgender people and constantly like have the fear of being deported because she is doing work for the community. And I felt that, that she's done so much for the community, but like the, the suffering that she has is unjust. And it's only until in 2017 that she got commanded by the governor of New York State, Governor Kumo, that she finally uh, got pardoned and achieved her citizenship. And then two years later, in April, in 2023 years later, she was affected by the coronavirus and passed away. Uh, she has a great community that loves her. And the money she raised even though it's just $45,000. And I was thinking about that. I mean, for startup us, I raised more money than that. And, and in a way, that's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. $45,000 can help with the transgender healthcare within the entire community in Jackson Heights, uh, help them with uh, you know, needles for like the hormonal injection, help them with the bail fund when they get arrested by the police unfairly. $45,000 can go a very long way. 
And every year for Pride Parade, we waste money on like superficial things. Like we waste like hundreds of thousands of dollars on like parade floats, like just to put like a giant T-Mobile logo on it. Like for what reason? When we can spend a lot more to really actually directly impact and help our communities. And that's what I want our leaders, our people who are, have power, really think about how to use the power and spend them in ways that will have direct and crucial impact on transgender and gender non-conforming communities. So that's what in my mind right now. Adelina, thank you for sharing such a candid and personal story. I think that this work doesn't happen without all of us having dialogue about the stories of folks that we've gained and folks that we lose. So thank you for offering that as a place to, to start. Yeah, thank you, Madalena. I need to follow that. Thank you. <laughs> What's on my mind? Um, I've been learning a lot. So, and I realized that I thought because I was an immigrant, I grew up in France, moved here eight, nine years ago, that my lack of education around Black history was coming from my um, whiteness and the way I was raised in France as also with a very racist culture. So when I moved here and I, I thought I, I didn't know all the Black history because I was, that was my fault of being an immigrant and I had to take some efforts to learn. And I'm doing that now with so, so much pleasure of like now really having the real facts and not just how history was whitewashed. And I talked with my friends here and some of the, my white friends were like, oh, I didn't learn that at school either. So this is where I realized that this, like me, I was like thinking I didn't know enough because I was not in high school in the US. And I realized what is in books in high school and any type of school is actually not even the truth. Like everything from how Europeans, when they arrived in the US, they flew from Europe and they were oppressed. And that, so they came here and their way of like dealing with their own trauma was to oppress more people. And even from that moment, everything escalated into who I can oppress to feel better kind of thing. And how, like, I'm learning so much. I'm learning how race has been decided very, like, arbitrary. And from the get-go, there was five races and black was definitely, like, described as less than. So I'm learning all of that. And that's what I'm doing on my, uh, on my time. And it's, uh, for me, like, such a critical thing to do as a white person. And I... I started to think about what I actively, what is my own way of protesting. So I have immunodeficient uh, health, so I wasn't able to go into protests on the streets. So that forced me to think, okay, I cannot be using my body to be facing cops instead of black folks. What can I do? What I'm thinking now with more clarity is really my, my goal here, and it's only mine, is really to hold conversations with white folks who, are not, who did not start their own detox from white supremacy. Because I really see it as a, we need a detox. The same way you will need 12 steps to get out of any type of addiction or codependent meetings. I think it's the same thing. And when I talk with uh, white folks around me, they have a lot of uh, discomfort. And if you have a lot of privilege, white being one of them, being uncomfortable is very, very triggering and very difficult because we never had to be uncomfortable as a trans white person i had to go through like against the, the flow by coming out i came out at 36 i was born a girl raised a girl i lived at the woman for 36 years and it took me to really like be at the end of the end and to like really push myself or try to survive and try one more thing that i realized oh 
I am actually, um, I'm feeling more like a, a masculine person. I'm non-binary, but I need that energy to get out. And I finally came out at 36. So, and I lost so many people, so many things because I was against the grain. And so I know what it is to be uncomfortable. And I'm actually now where I am with my growth and healing and everything is like, I love being uncomfortable because I know what's on the other side is growth and more community, more collectiveness. But that's a, that's the practice. Like for a lot of people who are waking up now, which, which is great. I'm like, I love that I see so many white folks in the protest. This is great. This is also a moment where people are facing with their discomfort or like there's going to have a change. And so I want to be that person of like helping white folks to learn how to be uncomfortable. I don't want to talk with black folks and telling them what to do. I'm not trying to build new programs and new ways of like defunding the police. They're like, they're like decades of people doing it. They know what they're doing. And so I want to focus on where I can find a spot where I use my own core purpose and I, I'm actually like helping white folks to be anti-racist also. Um, and I look around, I'm like so proud of seeing all those communities. I trust black people. And I think that's something a lot of people don't. Like if an organization like Movement for Black People, the Black Lives Matter, the bailout projects led by black folks, they know what they're doing. And I trust them like 100%. And I think the problem I can see in tech industries, which I'm like, I work for tech in the tech industry for like 15 years. I still feel, I still see people who actually don't trust. In one of the projects I was working on recently, they kind of agreed on hiring more black women engineer, but the email they sent to let the team know was added was like, but let's make sure we don't lower the bar. And this is for me is disgusting of like, this is that we're still there. We're still there with that concept that has been created for 500 years ago that the white race is better than any type of other race. And this is something I want to really challenge and debunk. Just to finish my own like uh, rant, <laughs> what I get, I got for me as a white person, I got some strength and get out of that paralyzing moments of like, what the fuck can we do? It's like when I read the book Healing Resistance by Kazu Ahaga, he explained that a lot of communities are working towards reconciliation, reparation, and, and discrimination. And he explained that those uh, communities are like working around a 250 years roadmap. This is terrifying, 250 years. But at the same time, it's so hopeful because it gave me like, okay, what do I have? Maximum, maybe 50 more years to live. Uh, I'm 39, so maybe. Uh, like, what can I do around that time to push, move the needle as far as I can? What can I do for other generations to continue? Like, I have a kid, he's five, almost six, and what the power I'm giving him is going to continue. He, he doesn't have to wait 36 or 39 years to be aware of what racism is. He's aware of what people are on the streets, why people are fighting for uh, black lives and why like he drew like a black lives matter sign and he drew a cop and put a cross on it i didn't tell him we don't need cops but i just tell him hey that's why people are out there there are some cops who are being up and killing what black folks and that's why people are angry what do you think and you're like oh that's terrible they shouldn't do that so this sign was already like okay there's a problem what if we don't have the people being mean to other people he's five he already knows more than i knew five years ago that's mean those 250 years get like that's doable. Like we have to do what we can in the years we, we are still here. Thank you, Max. And, and thank you for 
sharing your path to allyship. I think let's talk more about that, about what is needed from people now. How can people be better allies for trans and gender nonconforming people? And maybe, Sloan, if you don't mind, I know you have some some thoughts here. And if you wouldn't mind sharing yours, that would be fantastic. I'll first say that all of my approach to social justice is informed by Black and trans theorists, organizers, writers, and activists going back to the beginning of this country. So whether you're talking about Harriet Tubman, Baynard Rustin, or more current for me, Bell Hooks, is this idea of theory as practice. And so I really invite all of us, I invite in my work and including now, to say like, I'm not going to give answers. I'm going to give the questions that I have found and the resources that I have found to bring me to some clarity. So part of it is just this understanding of community. And at work, it's really hard to see it as community. But in community, it's easier to show up as your full self, to be empathetic, to think about power and privilege and positionality. And so one of the things I feel like is worthy asking the question is like, if the only thing that matters to us as a country right now um, is healing the wound of white supremacy on our culture and psyche, what's the first step? And the first step I have found is like, well, what conversation are we trying to have? We're trying to have a conversation about how we can make sure that people who look like me, people who are have a shared experience of this kind of violence can heal and so I think that it's about moving beyond empathy to gentleness also. So I really, I ask the question of myself of like, when I'm with facilitating a team meeting or a client meeting, I ask questions like, who's going to be making decisions about how we come together? How are we deciding this agenda together for the topic of the conversation in the meta way and the literal way? How are we going to share resources? How will we learn together? And how will we address harm and how will we understand harm? So those questions I've been framing with our consulting clients, and it's the same questions I asked myself. It allows us to enter a dialogue from the place of like consent. And I feel like a lot of what has been experienced by Black folks at work is trauma, which is not, is pain without consent. And it's the pain of respectability of microaggressions. I was talking to a friend about how her boss was like, oh, microaggressions are a thing that millennials made up because they're so delicate. And I think it's partly that the liberal understanding of violence is very physical, very material, which is also a type of supremacist thinking is that the physical real is all that is, where for me, I have felt the most realness in my spirit or my inner self and the violence that I have experienced as a black person, as a trans person, as someone who has, you know, struggled with depression, I think about violence a lot. And so if this moment is about how do we move forward with less violence on black people as defined by black people. It starts with asking that question is like, how are you defining violence in your experience? And it may not be that the police are hitting you. It may be that they're not killing your friend. It may be that the white woman in your office is asserting power like Amy Cooper did during the standoff in Central Park. It is the weaponization of whiteness that is violence. And so how does that show up at work is something that maybe that's the starting question is like, how are we weaponizing our whiteness? And you know that by understanding the yeah, pain I mean, like it, of black. It still amazed me in a lot of ways that like the media, let's say general media, but like even like for liberal media, they don't hesitate on like, just like overriding or defining what they think violence is. Like it, it's amazing how quickly like they would jump to like 
you know, destruction of property and all that stuff as violence, while at the simultaneously you have we have the risk of brutality and also years and decades of systematic racism that is going on. That is not just equally violent, but a lot more, way more violent than just like destruction of property. I agree with you, Madeline, to say that there's a lot of data. And I feel like the data is that we have visible data that the cops are killing black people. We know that now. Everyone knows. It's, the jig is up. And we know because of Amy Cooper's action in the park, that the jig is up, that white people can be weaponizing their whiteness at work. And there's also other data, right? If we look at the years of health inequities, years of a lack of political parity, years of a lack of ownership of anything, housing, teams, businesses, political office. Like if you look at all of those data points for 400 years, Black people have been saying, this does not work for me. And it is only when we are physically killed or brutalized, especially as Black trans folks, that our life matters. I would like my life to matter not at death, but at the first part of it, when I'm still alive. And so if we're really going to look at that, we have to look at how do we will communicate if their life is okay, which is like, can I take care of myself? Can I have the $45,000 I need for my care? So it's like, we have to really reapproach this because this, like the, the information of like Black people are in pain is already there. The data on trans people being in pain is already there. The question is, are you empathetic enough to listen and brave enough to then act? And that feels like the opportunity right now. Yeah, and it's like listening is the first step, right? Like acting is definitely like a much bigger step and the sharing of power as well. I think uh, a lot of people like like to say that, well, I don't have any power to do it or like uh, I'm not in charge of this. Like I'm just following the rules. What else can I do? But I think like something that we, it really, especially when we start examining like the nature of like uh, police, right? We start realize that it's not just the, the police that are performing the violence that are bad, right? But also the people who are complicit with the violence, they are also equally responsible for like the situation and like the terrible conditions that like underprivileged folks and black people are in so something that like i think people need to really uh, i think as an ally they need to really take a deep look right and understand what power they really actually have the, the irony really is that like for, for cases like you know where we just talk about amy cooper right like she deep down she knows what power she has like she knows that like as a uh, <laughs> white person who lives in the Upper West Side, she can call the police and she can like have the power to like influence her space, influence like what she can even see in, in front of her eyes. That's what she thinks, right? But like, she might not realize that, right? Like in, in, in a situation where there, if she were on a decision table where if she were asked like, what can you do to like, help with the black community? What can you do to help with the transgender and gender non-conforming community? They'll be like, ah, I don't know what else I can do, like I can donate money or whatever. Like people know what their power is, but they don't actually act on it. So I think like one great example was uh, that happened during the, the protest was uh, MTA workers uh, who were asked by NYPD to uh, transport uh, people who got arrested to jail. And the bus driver knows what their power is, 
the bus driver knows that the power is to you know drive a bus, have the license to drive a bus, and carry people from one place to another. And so um, they put their foot down and refused to drive the people who got arrested to jail. And that's how they reassert their power. And there's a lot of creative ways. Like if we really look deep inside us of what our power is, there's actually a lot of different ways to help our communities rather than just the usual ways that you are being preached about. Like, you know, I mean, we all know that, right? Like using the right gender pronoun, right? Things like that, right? But there's actually a lot more you can do as a person with power to help people that are in need. Yeah, I would like to add a, a few thoughts if you don't mind, Sloan. So in that, Amy Cook, what I realized by being a white person where I could, I can imagine myself being in the situation, by the way, I've been raised and how black bodies have been like treated as like a threat. And I, what I see is like in that situation, in the white perspective of like, this person reacted in so aggressive way by calling the cops, like just because someone asked her to follow the rules by putting her dog on the leash. That's the only thing. She felt attacked by just following the rules and it has been asked by a black person, a black man. And I think this is where, like, to, for her, I'm pretty sure it felt unacceptable that she was reminded of following the rules. And I think there's a lot of, like, white fragility here or, like, there's a need for, like, being humble of, like, oh, my bad, I made a mistake. But for someone who has been raised as the top of the chain, this is a lot of work to do. And this is, for me, what the white people we have to work on is, like, be okay when we make a mistake. And this is something I practice and I see a lot by misgendering for trans people. The thing of like when someone uses uh, the wrong pronoun for me, that's the, the reaction is like either dismissive or going into so many apologies that I am feeling now very uh, uncomfortable because the person's like, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to, blah, blah, blah. And that's the fact of learning to like be okay with discomfort of make, having made a mistake of like, oh, my bad. And that's how that person is able to do that means they worked on themselves. They worked on their own uh, fear of failure, their fear of not being seen as a good person. And I think it's a lot of self-work and healing. And it's has nothing to do with the workplace. It's like individual work. And I think the workplace can role model that in the way meetings are happening, in the way someone uh, didn't meet uh, a deadline. Someone is like very busy at work now, working from home with a kid and like they cannot be on the call or like they're like, very, very sad and, and uh, not okay that day on like being okay with being human and being okay with making mistakes and learning from mistakes. And like, they're the way of like leading a team with that, of like we don't point people for their mistake. We like turn that into a learning moment. What did, what are we learn? Like, ah, oh, we learned that we should meet up one hour before a call with like the client so everyone knows what they have to say instead of like, well, you, you said something that was stupid. And I think it is all about learning to make mistakes as a, a way to grow. And I don't think it's part of like um, how we've been raised as white people. We've been raised like we're exceptional, we're the best. And what I wanted to add was what Madalena you were saying about everyone has power. Everyone has power, and especially white people. I can't talk for all uh, industries, but I, as a designer, I think we went through like the past 10, 15, 10 years in, into like a very slippery slope of saying yes to everything as a designer. And saying yes to build products that are harmful for a certain type of people. And what I'm, what I'm really like building up for the past year is really like this fire inside of me. I'm like, 
designers should, especially white citizens of the US, have less and less things at risk. Those designers should role modeling, like saying no, no, because it's going to harm this community in a nice way on how can we make it better. But this should, should say no and why and why again and why again and go into like, oh, you actually don't know what the community needs. Why don't we do like a co-design with the community, know what they learn, what, what, we, what they need so we can actually help them build it instead of we know what they need. Let, let us build it and give them to them and they're going to be very happy. That's not how it works. This is a very white supremacy way of building products of like we know best. They don't know what they need. We, we can tell them because we are the white saviors. And I think there's a way now I can feel it in the design field that it's burning a bit more. Me, like for the past year, I had multiple projects because I'm speaking up. And of course, people are like in leadership are like, no, no, like we're going to continue to make money for to please our investors. So that's way of co-designing with communities will go away from that. And I think there's like two assumptions that are wrong. It's like building for the community will make a better product and the investors, maybe they're not the right investors. So why would you pick people who are invest in money and the capitalism success where you could get more of like the actual care for the humans. I want to get to one, one more question. There's a huge gap between the murder of black people and the murder of black transgender people and unconscious bias training, which is what I'm seeing is company structural changes internally and creating psychological safety for trans and gender non-conforming people. Just pay us, like pay, hire transgender people, hire black transgender people, hire them to be the CEO, hire them to be the COO, get them on your board. And like, if you don't have the power to do that for some reason, then perhaps you can invite one of us on this call to come to a panel someplace and pay us for that. You know, I think it's really like, if the emotional education is important, pay for it. Yeah, and I, I, when, like, when it comes to hiring, I find like a lot of these like hiring process to be very much chicken and egg. Like they're looking for, well, we need to have more representation here. We need more like black people. We need to have more transgender and gender non-conforming people in our like leadership. Well, I just looked it up uh, a few days ago. Well, even like for liberal organizations such as New York Times, 0% of the leadership is uh, gender non-conforming folks. So it's, it's a shame in a way because like they, they're looking for like, well, we need to have someone with this, this and this leadership abilities. But yet, you know, like how, how are you going to find these people if you're not willing to take them into the fold and give them the training they need, right? Like, like a lot of us already are like being like discriminated in the workplace. We're not as promoters often because like they don't trust our abilities. Uh, people who uh, transition earlier, they might like get dropped out of college because of like domestic violence or like discrimination and harassment. Like we are already trying to run this race and we're trying to catch up and if the companies use the exact same standards as they judge a white male, white cis male to hire a black transgender person, there's no way you'll ever find any suitable candidate for that purpose. And I find that pretty much ridiculous. And, and it's like, I think something Max and I talked about earlier, it's not about like the skill set that you're looking for. You're lo looking at the humanity and the experiences when they hire them. And I think, yeah, Max, if you can add on that, that would be great. 
Yeah, I think that's like if you are in position of hiring people, I think that like it's a very, very important position. And I think this is a lot of power, more than we think we are. There's ways to write the job listings in a way that's going to be less gendered and welcome more values. Like you want to have to bring values to the company, which used to be culture fit. This is the opposite. You want to have values that perspectives and lived experiences that are not part of the company yet. If you're in a huge company, this is even harder because then you have to convince so many people. But here, I think this is where, for me, the, those protests and the COVID-19 gave me, like we all have a core purpose in life. And as much as we can try in the big or the company you are now, if you meet over and over again by walls, maybe that's time to like make a move into where can I actually express my full power in a different company. And I don't want people to take all the risk and just quit, but that's a good thinking, like slow process of thinking, where can I be more valued myself as a person who is hiring? I have deep belief that I will need more trans people, queer people, black people, indigenous people with disabilities, POC. But it's not something I managed to make happen in that big company. We've already built for decades, for example. And I think for people who are in small companies and like still building a team, the first hires should be people underserved people. Like it should be like already part of like the first, one of the first people in the leadership should be someone part of an underserved uh, community. That's going to make the work so easier moving on to build like an actual uh, actively diverse team. And then the product is going to be so much better. And then it's, it is hard to change from like a big company. I want people to try and educate and read stuff and find tactics. There's a definitely a, even more power if you're in a small company and you can bring that change from the beginning. We are nearing the end of our time here. Can we just quickly go around the room and in just a, a minute or so, can you say how people can learn more about you and your work? Any one last thought you have to make that you wanted to make sure was contributed to the conversation? You can find me at the real Sloan Leo on Instagram or sloanleo.com. And I would say in this unprecedented time, how are you taking unprecedented actions? You can find my design work and a lot of case studies and product design that I've done at my website, which is my name, madelinamac.com, M-A-D-E-L-E-N-A-M-A-K.com. Um, yeah, it's always available for uh, user experience design gigs as well, if you need any help with that. My last tip for this is, I think allies need to be aware that they're here to help make spaces, not to take spaces. And, and that's something can be ex as simple as like your Facebook feed, right? You know, make spaces for like people who are in need to speak right now, right? Instead of posting about how great you are attending the Black Lives Matter protest. Why not, uh, you know, repose a great speech from a Black speaker from the Black Lives Matter protest instead, right? So it's about making space, not taking space away from them. You all have the power to do that. And there's like this banal quote that goes around social media for a few past years now. Like it's about diversity is being invited to a party and inclusion is being asked to dance. And actually, I have to argue that inclusion is a lot more than that. We actually need to go beyond the next level of inclusion. It's not just being asked to dance, but also giving and sharing your power to like have like the underrepresented folks, you know, to become one of the party organizers. That's what being an ally is. It's being able to let go and like being able to see that you are, have a lot of power to make changes and you have the power to share your power so that other people 
can help make changes to make. I love that, Madalina. That's something we were talking with Sloan when I invited them. Of like, my goal here is really like I wanted to make room for more voices like Sloan, who is already doing a fantastic job and with their own lived, exper- lived experience. And I think it's it's this is all about our own discomfort of giving up space and for me i can share how grateful and i feel like in my body my sensation to have sloan accepting and being there and i feel so much bigger and healed i feel supported myself because i have this strong uh, person with sloan and strong person with madalina like we are together in this and i would like me myself only in that panel i would have i would have not said as amazing things and that's the part of like being collectiveness um, and people can find me on LinkedIn at Max Measure, and I really love LinkedIn in terms of like asking questions. So if we don't have time to answer the questions, please find me on LinkedIn. I'm always uh, happy to add people on LinkedIn, have a quick uh, Zoom call, or actually, what's the other one I use now? Uh, Jitsi. <laughs> so I have more stuff to say. So find me on LinkedIn. My website is maxmeasure.com, um, and I'm always happy to talk. I'm very happy to talk to people who have difficulties in like in that discomfort moment and how they could find their own uh, inner power. Yeah, and to finish with that uh, dance party analogy, I think now it's time to have underserved people, trans, black, people with disability, POC, indigenous people, older folks to host the party. And just us as like white folks, uh, these people could also come to the party, but that's not their party. And that's being okay with that. I think that's the work that has to be done. Yes, I love it. I love it. Thank you three so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We just scratched the surface here and there's so much more to learn. And also don't let learning be a a barrier to action because really this is about learning and then taking action. Um, so keep the conversations going, keep the learning going, and also be brave and take a new action. Thanks for everybody for joining us today. Join us each week for Leading with Empathy and Allyship. Sign up to attend with live audience Q&A like this, or you can catch the podcast or video afterwards, and you can stay in the loop by going to changecatalyst.co, changecatalyst.co, and signing up for our newsletter. And subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody.